1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're continuing our study in it, finishing up this section dealing with Christian living. And then we're going to pause next week for Easter. Then we'll come back to some very important and exciting uh, themes regarding the rapture and um, end times in chapter 5. So looking forward to that. Let me read for us the section we've been in, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12 says this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help me be clear and you would help us hear your word and think about the ways that we need to respond in our own life, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Paris, France, is known to many as the city of light. And a couple weeks ago, that moniker took on a a literal sense as fires burned throughout the city. Not sure if any of you saw this in the news. France as a nation has come to see that its policies are not sustainable. The government invests in many kinds of progressive causes. They also provide many benefits to the people. All of that comes at the expense of the people themselves who pay a very high tax rate. The country is falling into crippling debt, and the government knows that it either needs to bring in more money, which means raising taxes even more, or spending less, which means cutting programs. One proposed solution was to raise the age of retirement, which many people opposed. Because of that possibility, the sanitation department of Paris went on strike. That meant the cities, the streets of the city were lined with piles of uncollected trash. Parliament was unable to agree on a way forward, and so President Macron, Macron called for a special cabinet session, and without Parliament approval, raised the retirement age from 62 to 64. As a result, thousands of people gathered to protest near and around the parliament building, and as they dispersed, they began to burn whatever they could, including the uncollected trash lining the streets. The garbage workers had literally added more fuel to the fire. Videos have come out of France showing streets blocked by burning cars, burning piles of trash. In one night, Paris recorded over 900 fires. One of those fires led to the evacuation of a building which was at risk of uh, igniting. According to the French Interior Ministry, over one million people protested around the country. A more ominous spectacle was a group of protesters chanting this, pardon my French. Louis says, Louis says, on la décapité, Macron, Macron, on peut recommencer. That's their chant, which basically translates as Louis XVI, we all beheaded him. Macron, Macron, we can do it again. 
This is a revolutionary style language over changes to their benefits. What does a scene like that tell you about the spirit of the French or the priorities of the people? I know that not every citizen is out there starting fires and and talking about revolutions, but when we see and hear these kinds of things, it it causes a reaction. We start to make judgments about the people involved because the representations that we see affect how you view the whole group, right? And it's the same way with the Christian church. People's ideas and views of God and Jesus Christ is going to be affected, one, by what they see in the media and in movies and in TV, and two, it can be affected by what they see in our own lives. We can't control the depictions of Christianity in Hollywood and in the media, but we can control the picture they get through our lives individually and collectively as a church. This is what's on Paul's heart as we come to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. He shares with them some important instructions concerning Christian living. He gives them ethical instructions. Verses 1 through 8 deal with sexual purity. And then starting in verse 9, he deals with love and Christian virtue. Why should we as a church care about sexual purity? Why should we care about love? Why should we care about brotherly affection? Why should we care about Christian virtue? Paul brackets his instruction with two motivations. The first motivation comes in verse 1. Just back up a little bit with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Here's the first motivation. It says there, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, we ask that you do so more and more. The key phrase there is to please God. That's the first motivation Paul gives. We are to pursue sexual purity. We are to uphold God's design. We are to love one another because that pleases God. We've been purchased by Christ through his death, through his resurrection. We belong to him. We've been adopted into God's family. We're sons and daughters, and our desire should be to please our Heavenly Father. That's the first motivation. The second motivation for Christian growth and holiness is found in verse 12 of chapter 4, and that's where we're going to be looking at today. Just jump over there with me to verse 12. He says to the Thessalonians, they are to pursue holiness and virtue, verse 12, so that you may walk properly toward outsiders before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The key phrase there would be walk properly before outsiders. This has to do with upholding the character of God in an unbelieving world. Obviously, there's connections there to our evangelism. So the two main motivations for pursuing holiness in sexual purity and in Christ-like love are to please God and to impact the world. God is watching us And so is the world. There's the heavenly component and there's the earthly component. How we live individually, how we live corporately as a family of God will convey a message to the world about who Jesus Christ is. Our lives will either promote God's purposes in the world or they will detract from it. 
And I point this out to you because as we look at our passage today, primarily in verse 11, I want you to keep that in mind. We're not talking about righteousness simply for the sake of righteousness. We're going to talk about what it means to live as a Christian and what, what, what Christ upholds as, as his children, as his servants. But it's not just behave like this because that'll make you a more moral person. It's this is how you please God and this is how you impact the world. We're living for the glory of God and we're living in order to be effective in his purposes. So to that end, look at verse 11 with me. And I want to place in your mind two principles for a life that pleases God and impacts the world. The first principle is the principle of peaceful living. The second principle is the principle of personal responsibility. So peaceful living and personal responsibility will go one at a time with them. The principle of peaceful living starts in verse 11. Just look at that with me. He's just finished discussing love and now God, through the apostle Paul, says we are to aspire to live quietly. Aspire to live quietly. Quietly, Just like our brotherly affection, our brotherly love impacts the world, so does the way we deal with difficulty. And that's what this phrase is aiming at. In the Greek, Paul takes two words that sound like they contradict, and he places them next to each other. If you remember from English class, maybe, there's a term called oxymoron. It's not an insult. It's a grammatical, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, uh, not, not metaphorical, what's the word? It's a literary device in which you take two words that seem to contradict and you smash them together so there are examples like deafening silence or an entire half of the people. You know, those are, they, don't make, they don't really match, but you put them together. Others have suggested terms like honest politician or exciting golf match, okay? But the first word Paul uses is ambition. Make it your ambition. Aspire is the term, but it speaks of ambition. It speaks of labor. It speaks of energy. The image there is sweat. That's what it means to aspire. You're working hard to get something you value. But the second term has a different idea. The ESV translates it as living quietly. The the, the term doesn't just speak of a literal volume of your voice. It speaks to a life that expresses a certain attitude of the heart. Every parent knows what it's like to have a young child who's sick or fussy or whiny, and you do what you can to calm them down. And what a relief that is. They're resting, they're at peace, there is silence. That's the idea Paul has in mind. So it's like he's saying, do your best, work hard to relax. But it doesn't mean relax in the sense of getting rid of your cares in the world. He means relax in terms of a peaceful life. That is a life marked by contentment and humility. I remember back in 2020 when the protests broke out on account of what happened with George Floyd, we were at home and my phone and my wife's phone go off at the same time at full volume with the alarm, you know, that Amber Alert alarm. And, and so our kids look over at us and, and, and one of my kids says, what happened? You know, because they know something that doesn't sound right. That's not a ringtone. And I said, well, it's an alarm and it says that we shouldn't leave our house today after dark because there are violent protests in LA County. You guys remember that? And so one of my kids says, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, it's, it's basically a grown-up tantrum. 
People are not happy about something, and so they're making their displeasure known by destroying property. And, and I said that, you know, kind of off the cuff in my response, and I stand by that. A violent protest is a grown-up version of a tantrum. And there are other examples. There are plenty of ways where adults still, we continue to throw tantrums and anger with attitudes, with voice, with breaking things. We see it happening more and more in our own country. We see it happening in other countries. That's what happened in France, as I described to you at the beginning. On a small scale, it's what happened in Florida a couple weeks ago when a woman drove through the McDonald's drive-thru and was told by the restaurant that the item she requested was not available. The woman became upset, so she flashed a handgun with a drum magazine holding 50 rounds, all because she wanted her free cookie. She ended up being arrested, and thankfully nobody was hurt. But we see examples of that in our culture. We see people, it's, it's, it's in the news right now, in, in states as well, as laws are being passed or not passed, people are shouting and yelling and fighting and destroying property because they believe, one, that's either the best way to get their point across, or two, this is actually going to produce change. That attitude does not honor God. It is not what God calls on Christians to do in the world. When you see people storming into some government building, whatever the cause is, we have to recognize, one, that doesn't honor God, and two, that attitude is the same heart of sin that we still have. Because when things don't go my way, we're either gonna get mad, or we're gonna panic, or we're gonna despair, we throw ourselves a little pity party. That's the opposite of this life of peace and tranquility. The peace and the tranquility come because we recognize that God is in charge and we submit to him. He is sovereign. And this is the heart that Christ modeled for us, particularly this week as we remember his crucifixion leading up to the cross. He surrendered himself to the sin and the injustice of the world. A peaceful life is one that recognizes God is sovereign even over the difficulties and the injustices of life, whether that be at home or at work, or in the community. There will be, there are some productive ways to affect change in our society for good, but we need to recognize that those societal and those cultural changes are not the goal of Christianity. That has to be clear. You need to, the, the, the culture tries to pit us against each other. You know, they talk as if we're in a culture war, and that's our victory. When the certain law passes or doesn't pass, we've won we're not here to change society, no matter what the media is trying to tell the world. The mission of Christ, the mission of his followers, is to seek and to save the lost. We proclaim the message of Christ in the hopes, and depending on God, that people will hear and God will graciously call them to himself. And as a result of people coming to salvation, there may be times in the grace of God, like during the 1700s, there was the great awakening with men like George Whitfield and uh, Jonathan Edwards. God may graciously, through the proclamation of his word by his spirit, produce a change in the culture. We should pray to that end. But again, that's not the goal. That's not the measure of whether or not we're succeeding. Again, so important to remember, especially in light of where we are right now, culturally, we see what's happening. Christian, the Christian school was attacked. 
immorality is, is, is champion. I think I read this past week in Canada, the, the state is promoting a, 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 a drag kids camp for as young as seven. You've got major retailers selling a drag queen teddy bear for children. The Christian response is not to go torch buildings and shouting and screaming. Our objective as the church of Christ is not to change the laws so that they can better reflect scripture or so that we can guarantee our religious freedom. Our objective is to see people come to know Christ. God's gonna take care of the rest and he'll do so in his own plan in this world or he'll do so when Christ comes. In John chapter 18, Jesus is on trial. He's standing before Pilate and he says, my kingdom is what, not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Remember he said that to Peter when he chopped off, he was going for the guy's head probably, but he lops off the ear of the high priest's servant. He says, my kingdom is not from the world. We as the church of Christ are not Old Testament Israel called to destroy everybody and kick them out of the land so we can rule. That's not how we function. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy. This is 1 Timothy chapter two. He was the leader in Ephesus. He says, first of all then, I urge and this is, 1 Timothy, by the way, is, is, is aimed at how the church should run. He says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Same principle. Godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. More important than who wins any election, we are to pray for the salvation of our leaders. We want to see them come to faith, and we are called to live in peace. We don't start revolutions we don't fall into despair or panic when it seems as if the evils of the world are dominating. Peter said the same thing in his letter. This is from uh, 1 Peter chapter two. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they, speaking of unbelievers, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Christians will be vindicated when Christ comes. And then in the rest of the book, he says, basically, submit to your rulers, be willing to suffer, and always speak with gentleness and reverence. These are the things, Romans 13, Paul's letter to, to, to Timothy about Ephesus, 1 Peter 2, these are written when evil men were in charge, men like Nero and Caligula and Vespasian, men torching Christians for sport, to live a peaceful life. There will be times when in obedience to God and for the sake of his calling on our life, we will disobey authorities over us. The apostles did that when they were told not to preach. You know, Martin Luther had to do that when he was mandated by the Roman Catholic Church not to preach. But even in those times when civil disobedience is appropriate because rulers have stepped beyond their ordained uh, a sphere of authority, even in those times, we're to respond with humility and respect. So we're called to live out a peaceful, tranquil life. And again, that applies at home, that applies at work, 
That applies in your own community and that applies to our life as a church and society at large. We're not to be belligerent. We're not to be screaming and fighting to get our own way or to get true justice for ourselves. And we're not to panic. God's in charge. Our battle, Paul said to Ephesians 6, is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against the culture and our battle is not against the evil people of the world. Our fight is against our own sin and our fight is against the lies that Satan and the world perpetuate. Think of our Lord Jesus. Think of Stephen as they died unjustly. They didn't cry out for justice in that very moment. They cried out for mercy on the sinners who deserved God's wrath. That's the heart we're called to imitate. First Peter 2.23 says, speaking of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus trusted in God's perfect plan and in God's perfect timing. That's the peace and the hope that impacts the world faithfully. Some in the world will see our peaceful life and they, we're not, they're not getting the response they want from us and they'll be enraged even more. Others will see and come, like First Peter says, and ask about the hope that's in you and they will come to know Christ. That's the large scale. Put it in a personal scale. Think, think about what it does to, think about how it impacts your neighbors when you're not at peace. What does it do when they can hear you next door screaming at your husband and your wife and your kids and everybody's screaming back and forth and then Sunday morning everybody gets in the car and they go to church. The world is watching us. We don't have to pretend like we have it all together. We're sinners. But we do need to walk in the sovereignty of God and in the love of Jesus Christ. That's the principle of peaceful living and it impacts the world. Second principle is the principle of personal responsibility. This comes in the final two phrases of verse 11. Here's what Paul wants from the church. He says, you need to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So this is something that's not new. He, when he went to Thessalonica in the first place with, with Timothy Silvanus, he taught them these things. It's the principle of personal responsibility. Just like our love impacts the world, so does the way we earn a living. When Paul says there, mind your own affairs, the focus there is take care of your own business. Be responsible for what you're responsible to do. That phrase, mind your own business, mind your own affairs, is not being used to say that we're not to invest in other people's lives. It would make no sense if someone said, hey, how's your family? I heard you were sick. How's your family? And I say, hey, 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 mind your own business. That's what the Bible says. You can't use that verse. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. Scripture, that's not the intent of Paul here. And scripture is full of Christians lovingly and graciously serving and providing for others and stepping into their life. The intent of this passage here is to keep people from abusing the love of the church so that they don't have to take care of their own responsibilities. So if you get hurt and you ask the church for help because you need to pay some bills and because you need your lawn mowed, 
I'm confident that the church will step up and will meet that need. But once you're healed and you're ready to get back to life, you can't just keep asking the church to do this so you can stay home and watch movies all day, right? You need to fulfill your personal responsibility. For the Thessalonian church, there may have been two factors working against them in this regard. First, there was the cultural factor because the Greek culture looked down on manual labor, the blue-collar work. That, 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 that's from the body. We elevate the mind. You know, we want to do things. We want to think. We want to be philosophers. Ma- manual labor was looked down upon. And God says, no, it's honorable. Adam was placed in the garden by God to work it and to keep it. Jesus was raised, trained by his father to work with his hands. Paul went to churches, we'll see in just a little bit, and he made tents for himself to provide for himself so he wouldn't burden the churches. Working with your hands is not a curse. It's a blessing of God. And whether that happens at your job or at home. So that's one factor working against him, the cultural factor. The second factor it was the spiritual factor. Again, it's, it's pushing against this personal responsibility. There were people, it seems, in Thessalonica who had a warped or an exaggerated view of the end times, and they thought that it justified them no longer working. So something like, Jesus coming soon, this is all going to burn, this is all meaningless, so I'm just going to go house to house saying hi, I show up around dinner time, get some free food, get some coffee, and no need to worry about my business anymore, because Christ is coming. That is an improper understanding of eschatology. Yes, there are spiritual things, we're to seek the things that are above, but not to the neglect of life. You ever heard the phrase, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good? That, that, that's not a true statement. If you truly understand heaven, you'll be a better person on earth. But you can warp your understanding and spiritualize things and no longer work. And apparently this was an issue in Thessalonica because Paul seems to confront it later in the, in the book and then in his second letter. Jump over with me for a moment to chapter 5. We'll get to this eventually, but chapter 5, verse 14, just the first phrase there. He says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle or the disorderly. Another translation is, or the undisciplined. These are people who aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. They, they, they might be busy, but they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They need to be admonished. They need to be corrected. And then he repeats it in his second letter to them. Jump just to the next book, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. And it's a longer section. I'm going to read the whole thing just so you can hear it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, all the way to verse 15. Paul says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but it was to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. I want to model for you what it is to work. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, Let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. 
Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So this was such an important principle for the church that Paul even advocates church discipline on someone who is unwilling to work. So just to be clear, this person is not in trouble because they can't find work or because they're unable to work. Those are different situations. This man is a disgrace to the name of Christ because he is unwilling to work and therefore unwilling to provide for himself and by extension, his family. In Timothy, it says, if a man does not provide for his household, he is worse than an unbeliever. This person is unwilling to fulfill their personal responsibility. So Paul Paul says, hey, if a man doesn't want to work, don't let him eat. Don't keep giving him free food. There's a a proverb that says that a worker's hunger urges him on. I remember hearing a mom who said that it was, I think, summertime, and the kids woke up around lunchtime, and they wanted lunch, and she said, you haven't done your chores. I'm not feeding you. Because she wanted her boys to understand, you know, you got to do your chores. You have work to do. Today, we still have cultural and spiritual factors that keep people from working. There is a cultural push that denigrates the honor of work. And then there are spiritualized or Christianized reasons that we can give for not working. We need to be, we need to be careful with those things. We need to fulfill our obligations. This is especially important for you young men. You guys are graduating or already graduated. The design of God is that you work. You're in school right now so that you will be equipped to work. God gave you a body. God gave you, our young men need to know this, women as well. God gave you a mind and a body so you would contribute. Proverbs 31, for example, the woman works. Whether she works in the home or out the home, she's contributing to the home. And you are to provide, especially you young men, not only for yourself, but for your family. That's his design, and we uphold that even though we see an aversion to work in our culture. You're not supposed to sit around waiting for the perfect job to fall into your lap. You do something. You, 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 know, you, you, you go to school. You, you, you go get an apprenticeship. You, you find a job. You do something. I remember years ago talking to, uh, not, not, not from our church, not a member of our church, but uh, a college kid. I think he was probably 18, 19, and, and he said, well, as long as I'm in school, you know, my parents just take care of me. I said, oh, where, you know, I was at Rio Hondo, he was at Rio Hondo, and I said, how many units are you taking? Oh, like four. Do you have a job? No. This is not the intent of God for a man. And I realize it doesn't help when our government is beginning to incentivize not working. But God's design is that we work, that's respectable and that is Honorable, you know, I went to work for a long time, Marie Calendars. I think about a few months ago, I went back and the first room is empty. I asked one of the employees, hey, why is the room empty? What are you using it for? And she said, no, we, we don't have enough employees. Nobody wants to work. They make more staying at home. I went into another taco place, you know, just a month ago and the sign, which I'd seen multiple times, says wanted, cooks, cashiers, dishwashers. They're in need of workers. They have business but you gotta wait for your food a little longer because they're short on workers. Because people don't wanna work. That is disgraceful, for one, to a society, even more so when it happens with the people of God. God will bless those who work and those who contribute. 
Genesis 14 tells us of a time when Abram rescued his nephew Lot. Maybe you know the story. It was before his name had changed into Abraham. A group of, I think it was four or five kings, stole a bunch of people and a bunch of goods and, and animals. And Abraham hears that his nephew's been uh, abducted, so he takes his army men, and they go, and they free them. And when they come back, he restores everything that had been stolen, and the king of Sodom says to Abram, you can take the goods for yourself, my gift to you. You know, thank you for what you've done. And Abram said to him, my God is Yahweh, the most high, who owns heaven and earth. I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. He trusted in God to take care of him as he followed the plan that God had laid out. He cared more about fulfilling God's plan than he did about money. Go ahead and go back to 1 Thessalonians 4. I want you to look at the end of verse 12. At the end of verse 12, you see the result of this kind of life. This is what Paul wants in the church so, and concerning their testimony to the world. He says, verse 12, you do all this so that you may walk properly for outsiders and be dependent on no one. Every, I think most of you, if you go to school, you had a group project, you know what it's like to have the kid who does nothing and everybody else has to pick up his slack or her slack. Nobody likes to do that. Nobody likes to work at a job where you have to do extra because this guy or gal doesn't want to do what she's supposed to do. Proverbs 10 says, a lazy man is like vinegar to the teeth or smoke to the eyes. It's painful. It hurts. It's annoying. Whether you work in the home or outside the home, God's design is that you take care of what you need to take care of so that you're dependent on no one. Now that doesn't mean that it's a sin to depend on others because we obviously depend on God. But we understand that there are people in the society who, who need to be cared for by others. The, the, the easiest group is children. That's what we call pe- people when they're kids. When, a, kid grew, when a, guy, a young man grows up and he's 25 and he lives at home, doesn't have a job, doesn't contribute, we say he's a 25-year-old child still because he hasn't learned to contribute. As parents, we're trying to teach our kids so that to work and to serve and take care of themselves so they can take care of others. It's not the fault of the child that they don't know how to do certain things, but we're trying to grow them in that direction. That was especially important in Bible times because when you got to an age when you could no longer take care of yourself, your kids had to do it. So you had lots of kids, you had lots of help, and that was part of the way they honored their father and their mother. So this, this principle, just to be clear, this principle of personal responsibility, this principle of depending on no one is not absolute. Like, if someone does your job for you, you've sinned before the Lord. That's not the point. As best we can, we should seek to apply it individually. Where that's not possible, we should apply it within a household. We, we take care of each other. And when that's not possible, it should be applied, I believe, within the church. That's what happened in the first century. You had widows who were in need. And in 1 Timothy 5, Paul says, look, if the widow has a son, let him take care of her. And again, that's the phrase, if a man won't provide for his house, that's worse than an unbeliever. And then he says, for those who don't have that, then the church should step in. And that's what you see in Acts chapter 6. They're providing daily for the widows. When the church in Jerusalem had a famine, what happened? Paul went around collecting from the churches to give. They, the churches served one another. So it's not, again, it's not a sin to, to be helped by others. 
But as best they could, they provided for themselves, they provided for their families, and then they provided for their brothers and sisters in the Lord. Think of what that means for your reputation with others. Again, the, the, the principle here of personal responsibility does not mean we should, help, we should not help others in mercy and love. Hey, can you help me over here? Take care of your own business. That's not what he's saying, okay? It means that none of us are to abuse the love of the church in order to escape our own responsibility. So to, to the degree possible, you work to take care of yourself, to take care of your home, and then to take care of others. I'm gonna say, we say this all the time, if you need help, you're in our church, if something comes up, you need help, you ask. And time and time again, we, we know people give, people contribute. When there's a need, we don't want our members to panic. We don't want our members to despair. We don't want our members to be lashing out in anger. We want to be faithful to what God has called us to do. We want to be humble to ask for help when it's needed. But in all of that, we want to pursue a life of peace, a life of tranquility that trusts in God. And then we want to seek to take care of our needs and the needs of others. This pleases God. And this showcases to the world the love and the labor of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for these important reminders. Again, we know not just for the sake of living righteously, but for the sake of honoring you, pleasing you, and for the sake of our witness to the world. We do pray you would help us live in peace in these times when, uh, at least in the news, peace is scarce. It's easy to scream and fight and shout. You don't want us to respond in anger and panic in our homes or abroad. You don't want us to be the, 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 the bullies at work or at school. You want us to honor you and love others, to proclaim the truth, to see them come to Christ. Give us a heart that breaks over the sin of the world. And we pray you would teach us this principle of personal responsibility as well. Those of us who are husbands, we pray for our wives as well. Give us energy to work, to serve, to raise our kids, to provide for our home. When that's not of, uh, possible at certain times, for whatever reason, Father, give us the humility to ask for help so that within our church we can take care of one another. We do pray for our young ones, our uh, high schoolers, particularly junior hires, that they would grow knowing that this is the picture you intend for their life, that they would work, they would serve, and that they would be a part of a family that meets one another's needs. Thank you again for the beautiful picture you give us of your people. And we pray you would help us walk more and more in line with your design. We ask in Jesus' name.